Welcome, podcast, British sitcom history of Name Alan, Companion Gareth. Yes. <laughs> that was that was me talking without pronouns. <laughs> in the style of Tom Chance. Yeah. The, uh, the titular character in Chance in a Million. Yeah, so we, we're doing Chance in a Million this time, which we'll talk about, obviously, in more detail. But you have already alluded to the most, I think, the most noteworthy thing about this sitcom, which is the odd speech mannerisms of the central character. Yes. Speaks without pronouns. Aggressive way of doing it. No, that's not even right. Aggressive method. <laughs> I can't. It's really hard to replicate. Went on a bus once. Not a good idea. Only one seat covered in orange peel. Back of seat in front, covered in four-letter words. Married couple in row behind, having blazing row. Child across gangway, puked into the aisle. <laughs> Bloke next door exposed himself. It is. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, Simon Callow, obviously, who plays the character, I heard him saying he did the character as if he's talking to a foreigner. You know, I was a sort of the classic yeah. Englishman talking to a foreigner, sort of speaks slowly and clearly and slightly disjointed sentences. He just talks like that to everyone. Now, you've, you've actually answered a question that I had, which was this ridiculous, and I am going to say it's ridiculous way of speaking. Was that on the page or is that Callow bringing his act, using his acting? I don't actually know a sort of firm answer to that, but I think it was on the page as in they wrote it as a character thing and then he really did bring it to life. And I don't know if that meant they accentuated it. Cart before horse. <laughs> Let's just talk a little bit about the um, program itself. So we are doing Chance in a Million. And as our listeners know, we always pick an episode. So the episode we're going to look at specifically is Series 2, Episode 2, For Whom the Bell Tolls. Mm -hmm. So we're going to look at that episode in a bit more detail later on. But just tell us a bit about Chance in a Million first. It was a, an early Channel 4 sitcom, wasn't it? It was, yes. 1984, the first series, September to October. Mm -hmm. The second series didn't go out until early 1986, but it was recorded about 11 months before, so I'm not quite okay. sure why it got delayed. So then they ended up doing Series 3 late 86 as well, so it was sort of a bit of a gap, and then they did they caught up by doing two series okay. there. And um, it sort of comes to a natural... We'll talk about the ending, really. It, it's They could have done more with it. I think we can spoil it. Basically, the, 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 the whole three-series arc is the, the, the relationship of Tom Chance and Alison Little. Simon Callow and Brenda Blethyn. So in the first episode, they meet on a blind date. And in the final episode, they get married. Yeah. And like, they could easily have done carried on as married life if they wanted to, but... Mercifully, they did not. Yes, it came to a natural end. Yeah, look, how, how, how hard are we going here? Because I, well, I don't have a lot of good things to say about Chance and a Million, to be honest. Well, when we were, <laughs> when we were comparing notes before recording... And you said something along the lines of, I'm going in hard on this, so you'd better find something nice to say. And uh, I, honestly, I'm scratching my head. <laughs> uh, I, I have tried to be, I, I, you know, I don't like to just be um, negative, so I've tried to find the positives in it. But yeah, let's set our stall out here. I don't think this show is very good. It wasn't a difficult thing to get through, particularly. It wasn't like a slog, but I did not find it very funny, which is sort of resident yeah, that, that, of a that, sitcom. The problem for me, or one of the big problems for me, is that the central character is not not very nice. But mm. we've looked at other sitcoms where the central character has not been very pleasant. I think he's charmless, though, isn't he? He's not. 
He's, well, he he's, no he's an eccentric, and there's a there's a charm to that. There's a charm to his eccentricity. I think mm, I didn't find him charming. There's something like and, nor is likable. Uh, nor do any of the characters, with the exception of Alison, find him charming. Like everyone else is scared of him because he's such bad luck. The, the, we should explain that the the concentral conceit of this sitcom. His name is Tom Chance, and he's plagued by coincidence, mm. which is quite a nice. Uh, little writing trick. It's an interesting gimmick, isn't it? Yeah, because it enables you to do the sorts of ridiculous coincidences that, that frankly, drive all sitcom. But no matter how ridiculous they are, you can kind of say, well, this is Tom Chance, you know, this is the way his life works. Yeah, and it's it feels like a good gimmick. Okay, we have a main character and his life is plagued by coincidence. But I feel like the writing is not clever enough to hold that up mm. because it's also something you can use as an easy get out of jail. And, and that's all it's used for. It's not, it's not, it's not used to do anything different or new with it. The, the episode we're going to look at in more detail, there are, there are three weddings and much confusion happens between these weddings. And you know, that, mm. that could be any sitcom. The fact yeah. that we've got this central conceit that, oh, he's plagued by coincidence. So surely everything's going to go wrong. Well, it would have gone wrong if it was Terry and June, but mm. you know, it's, yeah, they're not doing anything clever with that central idea, are they? Yeah, this episode I think is particularly sort of very sitcommy in that sense. Yeah, everything goes mm. wrong. That's a sitcom, right? I feel like this particular episode, the plot is very, very tangentially connected to Tom Chance. Mm. Um, and some of the other episodes are more involved and more kind of convoluted, but I don't think they're well enough written to get away with that. And sometimes they're just overly convoluted for no good reason. And there's a lot of times where there are elements, whole kind of sections that are just thrown in and thrown out, don't really connect in, but it's just some way to make it feel like, oh, that was a bit of a coincidence that happened, isn't it? Yeah. And it really doesn't come together in a very satisfying way. You know, I was thinking about Father Ted. Yeah. Because the the writers of Chance in a Million, Andrew Norris and Richard Feagan, we'll talk about them later, I'll give a bit mm. more detail. But one of the things I've heard them say is that they would start with like their end point and kind of work backwards and figure out how to make it all connect. Oh, yeah. I've heard Linehan talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. And Arthur Matthews, Graham Linehan, they wrote Father Ted that way. But they would find some way to make that work in the kind of, okay, we want, we want to end up with ted hanging by his trousers off of a tree how like how does he get into the tree okay yeah. why are his tr why did he lose his belt you know like all this stuff you gotta find yeah. uh, things to make sense with chance in a million the the writers their end goal was always that allison gets what she wants at the end like allison always has a kind of happy ending mm -hmm. and if you actually watch the episodes back again it's like oh yeah sort of they set something up early on like she wants to go and do this and then she always kind of get, we always get there by the end there's always just chaos in the middle yeah i'm not gonna go watch them again but Alison, but Alison is the one who gets the kind of happy ending, and sometimes that works for Tom, sometimes it doesn't. Mm. Often it just causes chaos for the people around them. But I think that's quite a nice conceit. Why is Alison happy with this situation? Why can she put up with Tom? Well, if the negative consequences don't hit her too hard that often, that helps us yeah. pull that together. And we set up the characters that Alison is this very kind of dowdy librarian with a very quiet, sheltered life. And so Tom is this ball of excitement and that brings life yeah. to her, which is something she's always wanted, but is sort of too timid to, to go out there for. And she is in turn a sort of stabilizing influence on him. Let's look at the, these two characters then, because, yeah, everything revolves around those. We have some incidental characters, but basically they're the only two who are in every episode. Yeah. Tom Chance. I mean, so the first point is their names. Awful, yeah. Tom Chance, terrible. which is, you know, <laughs> yeah. 
we're in royal pain territory here, aren't we? When the title comes first, and then you have to work back from the title. Uh-huh. So if she was called Alison Million, it would have been. <laughs> but even her name, her name's Alison Little. You know, she's this little mousy yeah, figure. Yeah, she's a little She's even got a little mousy figure, voice. Yeah. You know, she's little. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just, I, to be honest, I only realised a few episodes in that her name was Alison Little, and that really annoyed me. It just felt like really crap writing. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. Can we uh, enumerate the ways in which Tom Chance is annoying? We've already talked about his Ooh. voice. I've yeah. got a list here, so let's do a bit of back and forth. <laughs> Can you give me another way in which Tom Chance is annoying? The walk. The walk. Very good. Do you want to describe the walk or shall I? Um, lumbering. <laughs> go. How would you describe it? Well, he has this sort of... Um, thoughtful like he's deciding where his next step will be and then he takes his leap forward um and he's kind of low to the ground and it's it, it's almost mm. as if he's trying to creep up on someone but there's no lightness of touch about it i don't i it's really peculiar and again i blame <laughs> simon callow for this there is no way <laughs> that was scripted to walk like that that's him saying no oh, darling i'll bring something to this yeah i can see that you're saying it's annoying i'm saying at least it's something because I think the writing here, and I think of all the shows we've looked at, Chance in a Million absolutely has the least to offer of anything we've ever seen. <laughs> My God, that that is that is a powerful statement you just made there. We've we've watched some even, right old toss, even up the elephant. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe, oh, maybe not. No, maybe. <laughs> but yeah, I think whatever Simon Callow is doing, at least it's something. Like whatever you do, make a big decision. That's that's all we need. So what else is annoying? He's um, his his dress sense. His dress sense. Well, eccentric, like a sort of well, like a mid eighties Doctor Who, basically. I think this maybe this was his audition <laughs> tape for Doctor Who. It's nineteen fifties Oxbridge uh, graduate, captain that's, of the cricket team. T- lots of tweed. Yeah. Oh, cricket. He loves cricket. Yeah, yeah. He loves cricket. That's cricket a, that's a recurring theme. Another thing that's annoying. He's a violent man. <laughs> there's a lot of fight. There's a lot of threats bunch of fives coming your way (laughs) he gets wound up quite easily especially for a man plagued by coincidence who knows that things unusual happen around him and yet when when things don't go his way he resorts to violence far too quickly for my liking i'll tell you why i think he gets away with that first of all again it's simon callow he's about five foot six Although he's quite a big, he strong... does have a physicality. He looks, he looks powerful. Built like a tank, yet hard to hit. That's Simon Callow, yeah. and that's what they say about him. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think I read that in the in the program of his Dickens one man show. <laughs> he's chivalrous in his aggression. He he always stands up for his uh, his lady partner. Mm-hmm. Like he will defend her honor. Oh, he's a gentleman. He's a violent gentleman. It, it always feels like there's a. There's a reason for it, you know. He's always he, he's always under duress. It's not. It doesn't feel completely un, uh, unhinged. Mm. It's kind of like Victor Meldrew, you know. You, he does overreact, but you can see why. <laughs> he does get pushed to it. Can you give me one more thing that annoys me about Tom Chance? Um, he's an, obviously an alcoholic. <laughs> the way that he drinks a pint. <laughs> now this is again. What, I tell you what I do like about this. It's never mentioned. So basically. <laughs> Every episode, he'll have a pint of lager in his hand, and mid-sentence, he, he necks it. He downs it in one. We all just wait. The whole the whole production stops while he necks this pint. <laughs> and then he carries on talking. <laughs> <laughs> and I do like the fact that it's never alluded to. No one ever mentions it. 
<laughs> in fact, in fact, to the point where whilst he is drinking, there is this pause while we all wait for this to happen. And every time there's just like nervous laughter in the studio audience. Like no one knows what's going to happen. <laughs> like as if this is a build up to a punchline. Punchline never comes. Good. Yes. And Tom. Yes. Thanks again for the punch ball. It was the loveliest birthday present. No, no. Not at all. Not at all. Um. Oh, yes. Um. Uh. Um. <laughs> See you in half an hour. It's just the way he drinks a pint. And he does it on a regular basis. In any kind of real life world, he would be a, a an alcoholic and it would be pretty obvious. But this is a sort of heightened Tom Chance world. And it, he does occasionally act a bit drunk, but it never really hits him that hard, does it? No, no, no. Production question. That's obviously not real lager. I don't think that's a real pint, is it? Is that one of those special glasses where it's oh, like yeah, a no, fake no glass? Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a big cavern in the middle of it so that it's just around the outside. It's it's probably about a third of a pint or something like but that. I think the problem is it doesn't look like lager. It looks too light. It looks like harp. <laughs> Sorry, that's, that's a 1980s lager joke for the older listeners. It probably looks lighter because it's not as thick. It's it's only like yeah, exactly. a, an inch of liquid rather than three inches. But, but I think that's a problem. Uh, apparently, actually, Simon Callow said specifically, he did name the brand, but I can't remember what it was, but it was a non-alcoholic beer um, oh. that just tasted foul. I didn't know they had non-alcoholic beers back in the, in the 80s. Just for theatre, darling. I've got one more thing that really annoys me. Uh, okay, let me, let me have a think. What else is annoying about Tom Chance? Um, the hair? <laughs> Do you know what? I haven't written that down, but now you've brought it up. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. The hair calms down a little bit after series one, but in series one, he looks like, he looks like a kid's TV presenter. He looks like Sideshow Tom. He looks like <laughs> yeah. a, a, a discarded mop. I believe he's wearing a wig in the later series, which is why it calms down a bit, because you can't actually get a wig that is that ridiculous. My last point was, we talked about his drinking. What about his smoking? Did you notice his smoking? He smokes a, a, a cigarillo in a cigarette holder like Noel Coward. <laughs> <laughs> it's 1984, mate. What are you doing? <sighs> oh, well, now you've brought that up. If I had just shown this to you and you didn't know anything about it, you would never have guessed this was 1984. Surely you would have gone 70s at the very latest. I don't know about that. There's, some, there's, there's 1980s lingerie. Big knickers. Yeah, there is quite a lot of uh, uh, ladies in underwear. I will give you yeah. that, actually. Yeah, that's yeah, a good yeah. point. I know what you're saying, though. Like, if you look at Tom's house, the set dressings, it's certainly mm-hmm. not very 1980s. There's all sorts. Of, it looks quite old-fashioned. I, I, he's got big telly in the corner. He's got hi-fi, which doesn't look particularly, you know, new romantic type level. It looks quite an old yes. wooden thing. <laughs> he's got a rotary yeah. phone. There are... Odd pictures on the wall. There's like a picture of stampeding elephants, which I seem to remember. I seem to remember seeing that in someone's house <laughs> somewhere <laughs> along the line. He's got a chessboard on the table. So it's not, you're not Gary Newman, is he? Tom Chance as a character feels old fashioned, like the dress, for example. But yeah, he feels like an Oxbridge sort of tweedy type mm. stuck in South London. But we sort of deliberately don't get a lot of details about his background. They very much didn't want him to have a job. Well, we find out how he makes his money. Do you remember how he makes his money? Premium bonds. Premium bonds. Because he's, well, either lucky or unlucky, but plagued by coincidence, however you want to see it. He basically wins the premium yeah. bonds every week. Which is good. It gives it means that he's not rich. He can't just do whatever he wants, but he also is not worrying about money. I think mm-hmm. that's quite a nice setup for a comedy character. And... 
it does just ground him in reality because you know if you're plagued by coincidence then yeah you win the lottery right <laughs> so yeah it could very easily string out into some crazy lifestyle which would be less interesting probably yeah and then there is one episode where he has a winning streak and he, he is like winning everything mm-hmm. but, oh yeah this happens every now and then i have a winning streak yeah. So it's like, they used it. Use it for one episode. That's all right. Although he, he just wins everything at the local raffle. It's not like anything particularly interesting. Yeah, that's that's my list of reasons I don't like the main character of this sitcom. <laughs> it's a good place mm-hmm. to start, I think. It's a fair point. It's a fair point. What, do you want to talk about Simon Callow before we yeah. get into our episode? So I'll tell you what I know about Simon Callow. He's a right. proper actor. He's a proper thesp. Actor. I know he does yeah. this Charles Dickens one-man show. And I know he was in Four Weddings and a Funeral. And I know he was in Chance in a Million. And that's kind of it. Yeah, I know what you mean. He is one of those people who is just an actor and a personality. Um, and he certainly seems to be big on the personality. You know, he's um, he's the sort of person you want to get in and do an interview when something's going on in the acting world. Mm. He'll always give you good good, uh, good value for money. But he strikes me as, as, as the same sort of actor as, let's say, Laurence Olivier or John Gielgud, where you're always getting a version of Laurence Olivier or John Gielgud. Like, I've seen clips of him doing the Charles Dickens thing, and it's it's just Simon Callow, <laughs> you know, yeah. doing his booming actor um, voice. I don't know, I, I guess there's a market for that stuff, but it's, it, social realism it ain't. No, no, he's definitely stage. He's definitely a, a stage guy, yeah. And I think you, when you're that kind of person, you have to be. You're very big, everything's mm. big and booming, mm. you know, he's got that famous laugh. I mean, he's certainly a well-respected actor, sure. um, perhaps more on stage than anything else. I, I looked into him a little bit more. His background wasn't quite what I expected. I guess I expected him to be a bit posher, and he wasn't particularly. Okay. I think he was sort of firmly middle to lower middle class. Born in Streatham. Mm. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's just down the Saint road Reatham. from me. St. Reatham, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like his dad was a businessman or whatever. You know, it was something vague like that. But he spent a few years... In boarding school in South Africa, okay. uh, was something to do with his father's business. So he ended up over there for a few years. Uh, but I don't think his dad was much of an influence on him in his life. I think his dad left. Um, always a theatre guy. Uh, the TV stuff came later. And it, it seems like he was heavily involved in the gay liberation movement from a young age as well. Obviously, Sam Callow is gay. I think I and, did know that. Not that he was gay, but that he was, you know, active back in those early days. Yeah, and I, I, I bring this up because obviously at the time this was important. Um, I think nowadays it's just like, oh, you're gay, whatever. But hmm. he, 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 he officially came out publicly in 1984 in his, in his first autobiography. So just before Chance in a Million. But every like it wasn't a secret, but that was when it was sort of officially yeah, public. Sure, still a thing. I guess that was the AIDS era as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so he, he's, I've heard him say something along the lines of, like, "That feels like that was one of the most important things I've done." Like doing that, I think yeah. you know, not many actors were sort of voluntarily coming out, and it was a, it was definitely a statement. It was a, a thing to go, yes, this, um, yeah, proud, out and proud. I think it's easy to be complacent about that now. Society's changed so mm. much. That's a huge thing to do in 1984. Career risking. Yeah, and as far as I understand, he was openly gay, personal life for a long time. But in the acting yeah. world, in the theatre world, anyway, that's not particularly unusual. So he, he so yeah, he, a theatre guy, but made his name. Uh, what really made him famous was Amadeus, the play. Obviously, the original play. He originated the role of Mozart in Amadeus. Oh, okay. Obviously, it went on that. to become a film, won Best Oscar. Won oh, Best I, I know the film. Oscar. I know the film. I just didn't know he had any connection to it. Yes, I mean, he's in the film, actually. He plays a smaller role in the film, oh, just okay. a sort of nod and a wink kind of thing. But yeah, he was Mozart in the, in the original production. And very much that made his name. 
Uh, obviously, he didn't come out of nowhere. He was uh, working his reputation up until that point. But that was 1979. Here's a sitcom connection for you. In that original cast of Amadeus, one of the other actors was Felicity Kendall. Ah, okay. So yeah, uh, then yeah, I know, I know him. He's in Four Weddings and a Funeral, isn't he? Mm-hmm. I think he's the funeral. Spoiler alert: John Hanna stopped the clocks. Is is his funeral? Yeah, his eulogy. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, he was also. This is one's from my childhood. He was the main villain in Ace Ventura Two. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Is that that's the equivalent of Nigel Hawthorne being the main villain in Demolition Man, isn't it? <laughs> Exactly, yeah. Earn your yeah. pennies, lad, earn your pennies. Like Stephen Burkhoff going off and playing a bad guy like a, with a Russian accent or something. Yeah, he was the, he was the bad guy in Rambo too. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Mm. So that that's it. That was a good trade in the sort of late 80s, early 90s. The British actors played a good uh, good role as a, as a villain. But yeah, yeah. apart from the odd little thing, like and, and certainly plenty of TV credits and all that sort of thing, but he's the sort of person who'll come in for an episode of Midsummer Murders, uh, okay. you know, whatever. But he, his reputation is in the theatre. And he's also yeah. directed quite a bit of theatre. He writes uh, a bit for theatre, but he writes more non-fiction. He writes books. Um, he writes biographies of other famous actors okay. uh, and that sort of thing. He just seems like one of those kind of all-round kind of intellectual bit of a polymath a- actor yeah, but very much a lovey, a good old-fashioned uh, oh, yeah. lovey in the theatre world. You definitely yeah. get that impression whenever I've seen him, yeah. Here's a, you know, we say he's not particularly known for sitcom, especially, but one of his earliest TV credits in the 70s was uh, an episode of Get Some In. Oh, what's that? That, re- that sounds familiar. It was an Esmond and Larby show, rip- ripping off basically the army game. It was about these yes, Air Force I re- That's when we talked about it. Uh, Robert Lindsay was uh, mm-hmm. one of his early roles. So like, what, he's just in one episode of that, like one of his very earliest TV credits. And I looked at his IMDb, one of his last credits, like last year or whatever it was, was in The Cleaner, which is the Greg Davis oh, yeah. Yeah. show. That was a an interesting show. I didn't watch all of them, but it had some really Big name guest stars. Each Lots week. of people in just for one episode, isn't there? Yeah. Helena Bonham Chonham, Chonham Carter was in there. So, you know, Simon Callow, he certainly makes an impression, whatever he does. Uh, for all I'm going to say about Chance in a Million and I don't like it, Simon Callow and Brenda Blethyn are the things of value here. My, my take was very much that he seems like a bit of a lovey, but I don't really know him. I don't really know his work, shall we say. Yeah. I like, I'm far from saying, oh, he's rubbish. <laughs> I'm just, I just didn't like him in this. But like, like I say, at least he's doing something. Like, what, what else do you do with this script? Like, what? Mm. And this was his first major TV role. You know, it's yeah, yeah. not like he was in a position to kind of turn stuff down. Uh, so I think he just tried to make the most of it. Shall we get into our episode? We'll talk before we talk about Brenda Blethyn. Let's okay. let's actually get into our episode because we haven't even started it yet. So we want to talk about. Uh, series two, episode two, for whom the bell tolls. It's um, yeah, the the a wedding episodes. Quite a lot of weddings in the show oh, in man. general. Yeah, and it's kind of all set up at the beginning, isn't it? We we've, we've got the the main wedding from the characters that we know is basically two of Alison's workmates at the library. She's a librarian. Alison yes. Little. She's a very quiet librarian. And they've been pre-established as characters in previous yes. episodes. And it's a it's an older man. He seems to be a bit of a womanizer. And he's been having mm-hmm. having this relationship with Barbara at the library. She's somehow pinned him down. That's the that's the vibe, isn't it? <laughs> so some extent, yeah. We we saw in the previous episode she was pretending to be pregnant just to sort of force him into engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the sort of healthy relationship they have. Before we actually get into the plot, should we address the theme music? Oh, it needs addressing because <laughs> there's no there's no opening credits. The thing is, it's it's the same music at the beginning and at the end. 
There's no opening credits. Mm. It's just the sort of there are there are, there are, there are title cards and and a cast. Yeah. But behind it, we we can see the action already happening. Yeah, and the same at the end. Here I go again. I hear those trumpets blow again. All aglow again. Taking a chance on love. Okay, so. Uh, having just watched 18 episodes of this, that's 36 times I've heard this music, and I am really sick of it. I really don't like it. <laughs> but I'm trying to I'm trying to be objective about it. Help me out here. Why don't I like it? It's got a really old-fashioned sitcom vibe. Mm. Right? It's more like Terry and June. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it doesn't fit the show. It doesn't fit the 80s. <laughs> and, and it just feels really old-fashioned. And there is a reason for that. Okay. It's because it was the work or the, the product of... Michael Mills. So Michael Mills was the producer-director of this show. Right. And his background was more light entertainment. He was uh, a producer. Okay. By, like way back 60s, 70s, he did all sorts of stuff like just Saturday night. Like, yeah, it's got a sort of generation game vibe to it. Yeah. And and Michael Mills, like by this point, he was in his, he would have well into his 60s. He did all the light entertainment more than sitcom, really. At the BBC, and he was just starting to move into sitcom. He did um, the world of Worcester, uh, like some PG Woodhouse stuff. He did all Gas and Gators. Okay. He just started to be like more of a producer director on sitcom, and then he was made the BBC head of comedy oh. in 1967. So 1967 to 72, he was the BBC head of comedy. This is Michael Mills, and so he's responsible for bringing in shows such as Dad's Army, Monty Python came through in that era. The mm-hmm. uh, Up Pompeii. He uh-huh. was a big fan of Frankie Howard. He yeah. he was the one who apparently came up with the idea of turning the you know a funny thing happened on the way to the forum into a into a show. Mm-hmm. So then after he was he did that he moved into sitcom and his and so after he was no longer BBC head of comedy he went a bit more hands on as a producer director again the first thing he did the first big hit at least 1973 some mothers do have them okay not one of my favorite shows but there we go uh, but that was I mean you know objectively a big success yeah and then in the mid 70s about 1975 he moved to Thames TV uh, from the BBC. And so that, uh, it's Thames TV who produced Chance in a Million for Channel 4. Yes. But, you know, mostly they do stuff for ATV. First thing he made there was Get Some In with Esmond and Larby. Which we've just discussed. Which is what Simon Callow reckons that's where he knew him from, even though he was famous on the stage. <laughs> he probably just knew him from an episode of Get Some In he did 10 years earlier. Mm-hmm. And then carried on doing stuff at Thames TV. Chance in a Million was basically his last work. He died in 1988. And he, and this, I've heard other people talk about him. His approach was very much as a producer rather than a director. Uh, I think it was Simon Callow basically said, oh, he really knew what he was doing, but didn't really get involved with the acting. Okay. So what does that mean then? What does that look like? Does that mean an assistant director does the the directing? Well, you know how on these earlier sitcoms we see a lot of producer, produced and directed by. It's like, it's a combined job. You're the guy who's sitting up in the box, uh, telling the vision mixer when to cut to which camera and blah, Mm -hmm. blah, blah. And I think what we've seen of this period is that the writers tend to have a bit more influence on the actual material. So the writers will often be there in rehearsals and the actors will get to grips with it. These days, you would have a director who would really work directly with the actors. But back then, it was like the producer director was there to make the show happen. Uh The actors can act, so they just do it. And so that's why you end up with shows like, say, Faulty Towers, where John Cleese is essentially to all intents and purposes, the director on set, because he's bringing in actors he knows, guiding them on the writing, and obviously all that sort of stuff. Michael Mills is much more your old-fashioned 
look, go where I tell you to stand because the camera is going to be there. That's, yeah, that's and, what's and, important. You know, that's it. Yeah. Does that show in the product? Yes. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Because you get these under-rehearsed performances. You get someone like Simon Callow, okay, you've worked out the character, whatever. But you get these actors who come in for one day, here you go, here's the lines, do it. You know, some people are great at it, some people are not so great, you know, whatever. No, that's a really good, that's a really good observation, Alan. There's several times watching this where I've I've made a note along the lines of really bad acting about, you know, the the people who are just in one episode, those guest stars. Some of whom we kind of know and you know we've seen them in other things be a lot better yeah so uh, yeah that's an interesting observation it, it rings true yeah and I, you see that a lot in the older stuff especially the ones that feel like they're taking less care over that it's just a product yeah as opposed to like for example like Steptoe and Son and then we talked about Perry and Croft recently yeah and how Apart from being the writers, David Croft was the producer, yeah. director kind of thing. But Jimmy Perry was always there, always kind of working with the actors. Yeah. They cast it in basically cast actors who fit the yeah. roles, you know. I think you see the difference there. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm just thinking about Heidi High. The contrast is that there's a huge cast. There's an ensemble cast mm. versus essentially a cast, uh, you know, a regular cast of two in Chance in a Million. And so what I'm going to call the supporting cast, they don't get as much opportunity to, to develop character to provide a performance, I suppose. Yeah, you turn up for a rehearsal day mm. and then you can f- film. <laughs> That's it. Yes. Yeah. And if the director's just like, yeah, whatever, do your acting. Interesting. Then, you know, what are you going to do? But I want, yeah, I really wanted to go into Michael Mills there because I think you really feel his influence on this show and that old fashioned style. He's 30 years older than ev- the other creatives in the room, the writers, the actors. And he's got this old-fashioned style. And that's why I feel like this does not feel like 1984 to me. This is the same time The Young Ones is being made, you know? It's like, it feels <laughs> yeah, like a totally concept. different world. So they're dressed up for a wedding. Uh, they're all fancied up. Mm-hmm. Tom Chance is giving them a carjack as a wedding present. Now, bear in mind, remember I said that they write all these coincidences and they write these convoluted plots. They start from the end and work. So I was looking out for things that like, oh, I wonder carjack. if that'll come back later. A carjack. No. No. There's a couple of car accidents later. It's just a silly gift. And it is a silly gift, and it's a nice little joke. He's silly, he gives a car jack for a wedding present. But that's it. Yeah. It doesn't pay off in the future. Yeah. Alison describes what she's giving as a gift, both as a, a, a group present from the library, which doesn't go anywhere. It's not funny. It's, it's not a thing. But then she's also giving a joke gift, which is it's a small box, and the tag says, to stop the, the patter of tiny feet, which in the context of a wedding, would be like, oh... It's Rubber Johnny's. It's Rubber it's Johnny's. That's rubber the Johnny's. joke. Yeah, it's a Rubber Johnny joke. <laughs> and of course it's not. It's a mouse trap to stop the yes. pasture of tiny feet. Good joke. Solid joke, that. It's a perfectly good gag. Yeah. But Tom Chance doesn't get doesn't jokes. Doesn't get it. He doesn't seem to understand humour. No, he doesn't. He doesn't understand humour. And this is... Never laughs. So this is something that I, I, I think Tom Chance has autism. What I'm wondering is, is he written with that in mind? And it, because if not, then either they've done a very bad job or I'm being completely offensive in, in, in interpreting mm. them. But one of the things that, one of the things that is a repeated motif is that he's, he's very bad at picking up on social cues. Like when mm-hmm. someone's unhappy, he just doesn't notice. He's oblivious. Now you might say, oh, he's just an oblivious guy. But I, I, I think, I, I think he, he displays a lot of the traits of autism. No, I, I, I understand that exactly. I think back when this was written, I'm not, 
obviously autism, I was going to say autism didn't exist. Obviously it did. But what I mean was people didn't yeah. sort of use that word. They sure. didn't know that unless you were kind of actually knew someone uh, who'd been diagnosed, I guess. Um, I've lis- I've heard things with the writers and neither of them said anything specific like that. Nor did they say, oh, it's based on this guy I knew. And, like, and so perhaps unconsciously it was yeah, about yeah, someone yeah. they knew who was a bit weird and, yeah, actually had autism. They didn't mention anything like that. But if you're writing a character that's a bit eccentric, do you base it on people you've met in the past who, when it comes down mm-hmm. to it, may well have been autistic, even if we didn't see it that way in the time? I, I, I don't want to make too big a deal of that. But after I kind of had that thought, I noticed more and more how, you know, Alison would be very obviously unhappy about something and he just would be completely oblivious to it. Wouldn't even notice. Would just yeah. move on to the next yeah. thing. That comes across in this scene as well, where she's basically, yeah. as she does throughout the, the series, she's completely gagging for it. She's absolutely choking for it. <laughs> yeah. Like she's she's throwing herself at him and he's completely oblivious. After Even after she moves into the house, which she kind of forces her way in, they're sleeping in separate beds. And, and again, she's like absolutely gagging for it. And he just seems completely unaware rather than consciously saying no. They even manage to do this right up until the end where they're getting married. It's still yeah. like a thing, even though at one point they're getting, they have to, she thinks she's pregnant. I'm glad you brought this up. But they still sort of play along with this idea that he never goes anywhere near and doesn't really understand. I didn't get it. I I didn't get it. They're working towards getting married. Shall we get married? Yeah, okay. You know, completely unromantic about the whole thing. And then, yeah, she, she's pregnant. And it's it's quite a nice episode where she, she tells him he's pregnant and he sort of goes and gets his cricket bat and he's got a big smile. And it's, it's a nice moment. But I'm like, oh, did, did (laughs) I miss, did I miss them? I just want to put that in the context that he's looking forward to teaching his child (laughs) how to play cricket. Yeah, yeah, you're not going to stop that. You made that sound, especially when you talk about how aggressive he is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think it's, I think it is just like, oh, well, that works for this week's episode, so let's do that. It doesn't, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. there's no thought to it. Yeah, I think so. Okay, so yeah, so in this scene, she's, she's a bridesmaid at uh, Barbara's wedding, and she sort of says glumly, oh, I've been a bridesmaid seven times. You know, again, absolutely gagging for it. <laughs> and he's just totally <laughs> oblivious. And then I forgot to make put this in my list of things that annoy me about Tom Chance. <laughs> then instead of sympathising with her, what does he do? He gets his tuba out. <laughs> oh, God. He plays the tuba, Alan. Yeah. He plays the tuba really badly. That's another one of yeah, his little things. Yeah, that's another running gag, yeah. Yeah, he's my crap God. at playing the tuba. Then the first of our um, sort of guest actors for this episode. Mr. Wingent. Uh, Mr. Wingent. Yeah, played by Angus McKay. I don't know him. This is my tangent. Uh, is this a good time to do a tangent? We're 46 well, let's, let's, minutes Let's do in. a tangent. I don't think we've done enough. I've looked into the other actors who appear in this episode. Obviously, some, there's some little little bits of interesting things. I accidentally fell into a bit of a, a bit of a gold mine with Angus Mackay. Well, I must confess, I didn't recognise him, and I don't know the name, so this is going to be all new to me. Yeah, I mean, I didn't either particularly. I kind of looked at his IMDb and all that sort of stuff, and, the, you know handful of sitcom things yeah a real uh, a proper jobbing actor as they say plenty of interesting appearances but nothing stand out usually that's as far as i get however angus mckay for 50 years wrote a diary oh and someone has transcribed them and uploaded them onto the internet really where you can read them and uh, go through them so what i did obviously was I went to 1984 and Control F, Simon yep. Callow, Chance and a Million, I like it. I like and it. so I've, and so I have found extracts from Angus McKay's diaries that relate to this, and it is pretty fascinating. This is great. 
First of all, I mean, apart from the chance in a million stuff that I was actually looking for, these diaries are magnificent. I I got so distracted by reading all this stuff. I won't go into it too much, but basically, are we talking sort of Kenneth Williams self pity or Alan Clark self aggrandizement? Uh, self pity, very much. He's depressed. He's yeah. he's in this period of the eighties that I'm looking at. He's absolutely besotted with a young man called Kevin Malpass, who was a composer. And this guy was, was 21 when they met, and he uh-huh. would have been what 59 or something like that. And becomes completely besotted with him. The the kid lives in his house for a long time, and it's sort of like. Obviously, I was skimming through, so I didn't get every single detail, but everyone's like going on about how it's sexualized, and he's he's saying, no, it's not. It's like so much deeper than that. Because Simon Callow, as is mentioned regularly Mm -hmm. in this diary, at the same time, is in a relationship with a 16-year-old boy. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Simon Callow is like, look, you just fancy him. It's a gay thing. It's fine. Don't worry about it. But Angus McKay is completely besotted with this this guy. And when I was first reading this, I kind of made a note of the name, Kevin Malpass, fine. Mm. Uh, and I thought, I probably won't say it. Some, like, 40 years ago, he was sort of like a weird relationship with this older yeah. man. And But it goes on for... As I skimmed through, it goes on for years and years. And they obviously stayed in touch for a long, long time. Kevin Malpass, I think, ended up in a relationship with another woman. Ang- Angus McKay, by the way, was married um, uh-huh. for 20 years to, to a woman yeah. who died in 1977. And I think he became a bit of a lonely kind of middle-aged man. Uh, and, and so had a lot of friends around him. But certainly is has every element of the old fashioned lovey, um, you know, gay yeah. actor in the, in the industry, right? So what exactly that relationship with his wife was, I don't know. I haven't read the full diaries, obviously, but I don't know. But when I looked into this website a little bit more, the website was the diaries and is basically a Angus McKay fan site is owned and operated by Kevin Malpass. Ah. And I skipped to the end of the diaries, you know, just before Angus McKay died. And there's still mentions of them seeing each other quite frequently and him being friends with him and his partner and all this sort of stuff. Whatever this relationship was, which at first blush is a middle-aged lonely man besotted with a handsome young man yeah. in a slightly seedy way. Whatever that was, it lasted for 30 years uh, and there was a very strong relationship in both of their lives and still continues to this day. And so I I, I found some beauty in that, (laughs) whatever that means, okay? But I haven't read into all the details. Here's the other thing, though. Angus McKay and Simon Callow were friends. Yeah. I think that's basically how Angus McKay got this job. Okay. And... There's some really nice moments in the diary about that. They met in, I think, it's about 1977. They did a play together. So this was several years later. And here's a here's a quote from the diary about Simon Callow. It says, I feel the rest of my life, if I live to be 90, won't be long enough for us both to say all we have to exchange. What a joy. Wow. That's how he describes Simon Callow. He, lo- he loved the guy, right? And there's, uh, again, friends right up until Angus McKay died. So some nice bits in there. Here's the other side of that, though. This is <laughs> I found this um, this from this from 2010. So you know, he was, uh, he was Angus McKay was very much retired. He says, "Saw Simon on that one show. Oh dear, laughing too much. That braying laugh. Couldn't decide whether he was trying to fit in with something that was too down market for him." <laughs> so I found that quite funny. But let's get into the. <laughs> The chance in a million stuff. Yeah, I was going to say, does he talk about, does he write in his diary about the production and actually being in the show? Yeah, yeah, a few specifics. Here's, here's the main one. Um, this is from January 11th, 1985. And this is how I know that this second series was filmed in January and oh, February yeah. 85, even though it didn't go out till 86. So I'll, I'll read out what it says. Off to rehearsal in the afternoon, 
as they were doing a postponed bit of filming in the morning. I'll describe the company. Great. Perfect. Perfect. Thanks, Thanks. Angus. Michael Mills, the producer-director. Small, fussy, opinionated. Vital in a way, and less tiresome than at first seems. (laughs) A bit slow comedically, schoolmaster's manner, which puts people off. You can see that in all 60s producer. John Savident. We haven't quite dealt with these guys yet, but I'll I'll give you some of the other actors that we're going to deal with later. John Savident. Pleasant, humorous, but a little one-dimensional. Ah. Rather determinedly, self-consciously bold. Ah, I like what I say, and I say what I bloody like. <laughs> Hubert Reese, a bore. Who's Hubert Reese? Which one's he? So he's the one who is the partner with John Savident. Uh, ah, yes, The little yes, twosome yes. that they do. Yes. We'll talk about him later. Uh, Michael Petrovich, who is the vet in this episode we'll uh. deal with later. Michael Petrovich, a bigger bore. So stupid. Oh, wow. <laughs> Judy Maynard, who is the the other side of the Michael Petrovich, she's the yeah, one yeah. with the horse. On the horse. Judy Maynard, pretty with those fair, delicate looks that don't survive the fresh skin and curve of cheek. Her hair already a little dry and faded. <laughs> it seems her chap died last year. Otherwise, I'd have taken it that she's gone through spotlight. She looks a bit battered. Gone through spotlight. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> Ouch. For, any, for anyone who doesn't know, Spotlight is essentially a directory of actors. So he's saying she's been around a bit. Um, but that that is that comes across a lot, that kind of campy... Um, it's very humor. Kenneth Williams, Alan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Geraldine Gardner, who plays the woman who he's supposed to be marrying. Yeah. My opposite is Geraldine Gardner. Tall, principal boyish, huge long legs, a bit dotty. <laughs> principal boyish. <laughs> yeah. Um, and here's a nice bit. It's a joy working with Brenda Blethyn again. Her father died on Tuesday, so she was off for a day and then back. Very brave. Simon told me that her mother had said, Your father's gone into hospital. They tried to give him a blood test, but they found he hadn't got any. <laughs> so, so that's, yeah, exactly. I don't know whose joke that is. Is that is that Angus's joke, Simon Keller's joke, or Brenda Blethyn's mum's joke? Or the joke? mother's joke. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, here's, here's, so after they recorded the actual studio day, this is the next day, he says, how typical, I didn't write a thing about the studio day. Chance means nothing to me except money. I am terrible in it. I am so pleased for Simon's success. I enjoyed the day, give and take. Okay. So it's well, just a job. It's just a crappy bit of part. Well, yeah, it's not life-changing, is it, for anybody? This one, this this passage stuck out to me because it really puts into position the time and how this feels doesn't feel like the 80s. It says... First read-through of episode one of Chance, lots of Portuguese, quick lunch with Simon. Then I went to Beverly Hills Cop alone. Quite enjoyable, but very young and crude. And it's no use pretending I'm not worried by police going outside proper procedure. (laughs) That's amazing. That's an amazing collection of sentences. (laughs) But like, yeah, it made me think like Beverly Hills Cop, yeah, that is about 85, I guess, but... The, the concept that that is at the same period as Chance yeah. and a Million just blew my mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, it's so odd. I wonder what's. I wonder how the police have done him wrong. Yeah, well, exactly. I think he'd just gone in there for a wee. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've got a couple more. Okay, let's do it. Here, here's one the, the next year where after the episode goes out. He says, We watched Chance and a Million. Oh, dear. It did seem feeble. It's partly Michael Mills' lack of timing in his editing. Mm. But also, Simon does force. Ooh. 
And then some other things I just found, which is about money, which I find very interesting. Yeah. Uh, Angus McKay talks a lot about money in the sense of like, he'll go to some fancy restaurant and goes like, ooh, 82 pounds for dinner. But for me, about the sitcom stuff, I find this stuff fascinating. He ends up having lunch with someone called Nick Huron or Nick Huran, who was a producer, I think. But basically yeah. he said, this is his, what he took away from it. Told a lot of interesting facts about costs. Channel 4 pays Thames £50,000 per episode. And this is for Chance in a Million. Chance in a Million. Thames running costs account for 21000 leaving £29,000 an episode. So that's after that's after they've paid all the actors and everything? No, I think that's their, their general running costs is that. Okay. Uh, 29000 episodes to pay everyone, I guess. Even so, Geraldine Gardner has to provide her own clothes in this episode. Oh. I asked what the advertising revenue was. He said he didn't know any breakdown figures, but Thames has an overall advertising revenue of a million pounds a day. Wow. Even so, it's fairly staggering that three hours of gentle entertainment costs a quarter of a day's income. That's really interesting that, she, I mean, you've been in plays where you've had to provide your own clothes, but, you know, you would think yeah. something that was going to be on actual television. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, isn't it? But that's a lot. £50,000 per episode in 1985, it feels like a lot, doesn't it? I don't know. I haven't got much context for that. But I found that very interesting. And here's a, another, just another little money bits. There's a bit later on where he just sort of lists a few jobs he's done and then an amount of money. So there's not much context, but the impression I got is that this is what he got paid for Chance in a Million that year. So like one series of Chance in a Million. And it says he got paid £2,000. Okay. So that's for Angus McKay, who probably appeared in four episodes. I don't, that doesn't feel like a lot to me. Uh, 1985. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, and, but then in 1987, he makes a note that he got a royalty check for Chance in a Million for £445. Okay. So if a year later you're getting a 20, 22%, you know, on top... Yeah. That's pretty good. And there was something way... I, I found, just accidentally came across something like in 2010 where he was getting a £2,000 royalty check from a Doctor Who thing he did. He was in several episodes of Doctor Who back in the yes. back in the day. That was a fascinating... I've spent a couple of days reading that Angus McKay's diaries and it's really, really fascinating. Perhaps if he's been in other things, there might be opportunities for us to refer back to those in future episodes. Yes. He's in, I know he was in an episode of, uh, One Foot in the Grave, for example. But this, I think this one really kind of stood out because Simon Callow was such a friend of his. He talks about it quite a lot. Yeah. But the whole diary is all together. Like I skipped back. I had a look at where he was, um, when his wife died and stuff like that. And there's like a whole, she died of motor neuron disease. So there's like two years of her slowly degenerating and stuff like that. It's really raw. It's very brutal. He's, it's, it's so honest and, I even skipped right to the end and like the last few entries was a couple of months before he died. It's just sort of like obviously just struggling to get a few sentences out. Like the words don't even make a lot of sense. Mm. Very lonely man, I think, in many ways in his later life. He didn't have a sort of life partner in that sense, but lots of friends. But every it's always like, oh, Simon finally called. He hasn't spoken to me for three months, you know, and stuff mm. like that. He's um, tragically beautiful in a lot of ways. I think it's interesting when someone diarises in such detailed manner. We have this in our modern era. We, we, we witness people through social media. So you follow someone on Instagram, mm. you follow a friend on Facebook, and you just see their highlights reel, don't you? You just see the things that they, mm. oh, this is good, I'll post this. You don't see the, the hardship and the, the anguish and all the negatives. You don't yeah. post about those. But I guess if you're reading someone's innermost thoughts, you're going to get the, the rough and the smooth. Yeah, it's really clear that this was never intended to be read. And, um, you know, as much as that is a bit of an invasion of privacy, it's absolutely fascinating. Really fascinating. That was a really good find. Thank you for sharing that. 
And with that somewhat very extended tangent, uh, we're going to have to call it a day on this episode. We'll be back next week with more from Chance in a Million. We will actually get into the episode itself that we're looking at. We'll look at a load of other guest stars, and we'll be looking at the career of Brenda Blethyn, as well as the writers and the other sitcoms they worked on. And in the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch with us, we are on the social medias at BritComPod. We're on Facebook. If you search for British Sitcom History Podcast, you'll find us there. On YouTube, search for British Sitcom History, you will find video accompaniments to the podcast as well as other video content as well. Check that out. And see you next time for more abuse of Simon Callow in Chance in a Million.